0: What the hell I want to go off into and go to work for? Work for what? Money? I got all the money in the world. I'm the king, man. I run the underworld, guy. I decide who does what and where they do it at. When am I going to run around and act like I'm some teeny bopper somewhere for somebody else's money? I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game is mine.
1: To doing it with Mike Sachs and Rob. I'm Rob and I'm having a terrific year mostly due to the joy I get from producing this podcast. Once again we've got a jam-packed episode for you. First off Mike talks to the hilarious and talented Ben Schwartz. After that Mike talks with Caroline Weaver of CW Pencil Enterprise and finally Ian Goldstein brings you a fantastic interview with Nickelodeon legend Phil Moore. But first, I'd like to play something for you. You know, summertime is now here, and if you're like me, you like to make the most of your days. Which is why I wish my parents would have sent me to summer camp as a child, instead of dropping me off at the Independent Center Mall in the meth capital of the United States. So I was looking for promos for summer camps that I could send my own offspring to, if I were to ever become a father. I came upon a fairly interesting camp that looks to be disrupting the summer camp model that we've all known and loved for so long. Here, take a listen. What did you do this year at summer camp? I learned to swim. I made lifelong friends and overcame my fear of crafts. I developed important leadership skills that will propel my future career as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That's right, kid number three. This camp isn't about childish games. This camp is about gaining the skills you need to run a team, integrate products, influence colleagues, and take full advantage of trickle-up economics. But I learned the backstroke. Oh, shush. In case you haven't noticed, humans rule the land, not the sea. And the most powerful of those humans are called corporations. Did you know that the CEO of a large company can make up to 200 times as much as the average worker without feeling any guilt? Here at Camp Funergy, we don't lecture. We give children the skills they need to destroy their own soul, become emotionally numb, destroy other people's souls, and we also have water polo and arts and crafts. After eight weeks in the middle of the Lake in Wisconsin woods, we guarantee that your child will come back forever changed. And if you don't think so, we'll be happy to introduce you to our legal team. Camp Funnergy, who needs to dream? So first off today, an interview with Ben Schwartz. Ben Schwartz is an actor, comedian, producer, and writer. He was John Ralphio on the sitcom Parks and Recreation, and then was on House of Lies as Clyde Oberholt. His film credits include The Other Guys, The Walk, This Is Where I Leave You, and he was the voice consultant for BB-8 in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Mike and Ben spoke by phone.
2: I love this quote that I read from you. You said, where I grew up, it was insane to think you could be an actor or a screenwriter. It was like you wanted to be an astronaut. I love that comment. I don't hear it enough. I'm always shocked when someone becomes successful and then acts like they've always belonged there. But that's not my sense from, from what I read about you. Yeah,
3: it's just that my, family, my, my mom is a Bronx school teacher and my dad was a social worker and then worked at YMHA and then he was a real estate guy. So it was, it was uh, never in front of me. It was always to watch TV and it felt like this, you know, like different universe that didn't exist. So it, w- it wasn't even something that we discussed because everybody's job was so, just like we had normal normal jobs. And this, this to me is a very abnormal job and a very different way of, uh, of uh, you know, making a living for yourself. But it, it just was so, so foreign to me because we, we knew nobody we knew nobody that did it you know what i mean like i had met a doctor before i had met people that worked at you know i met a veterinarian i met I, you know i met a scientist i met a teacher but i never in my life met an actor i never seen a famous person uh, up close before um and so now that you live in los angeles and i have a lot of friends that have kids it's so funny because they see it and they know how real it is because their father's right or you know they're already thinking of you know their treatments for their stitches and it's 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 such a different world I guess uh, even though in New York there's a lot of art um, we just never it just wasn't it just wasn't a thing my assumption is are you from East Coast as well or no
2: yeah I'm from Northern Virginia and then Maryland oh very
3: cool so in your, your experience growing up seems similar to mine in that there just was never anybody that did these jobs
2: no one I mean there was in, in a local Maryland sense like I knew a little bit about the guy who made Heavy Metal Parking Lot which was shot not far from where i grew up and what is heavy metal parking lot you never heard of this no oh my yeah it was shot in 1985 before a Judas priest show at the Capitol Center in Landover Maryland it was one of Kirk Cobain's favorite movies he used to watch on the tour bus and it's just not to be believed <laughs> I mean it's you got to watch it it's just outrage I'm surprised you haven't heard of it it's sort of no I'm,
3: um, I am excited I'm writing it down right now
2: but that was like the world I grew up in. I sort of knew people who would uh, freelance for PBS or what I mean very wonky type of Maryland, D.C. creativity. But as far as, like, SNL and Mr. Show and all those shows, I mean, like, it was magical to me. A magic that sort of seems a little bit naive now, but it's kind of sweet in in retrospect. I mean, it was just, how do they do it? Yeah, and there's
3: also, I remember, the first time I saw um, Uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, a show called Cat, which is a Sunday show in New York, and it was at the time when all four of the UCB members are there because everybody still lives in New York. And so you're seeing Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and Matt Fetzer and Ian Roberts. And then Jack McBrayer is there. And, you know, the monologist is like Alice Baldwin, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember I saw one of those shows and uh, I was like, Oh, I want to do this. How does someone do this? How do you just make up a show that blew my mind, that with, with nothing prepared and just four chairs on a stage, you could make up an entire show, and I was like, I want, to, I want to try to do this very best and I literally asked how to take classes right
2: after. Well, let's talk about that, because you got heavily involved in that, and now you're known as one of the best. You put on a monthly show, a very popular show. How did you go from entering it, I mean, there, there's a big gap between entering it and then sort of becoming the best of the best. How, did, how does that happen?
3: I don't know if I'm the best of the best, but I do, I do think I've done it for a long time, and I get to play with people who are really good um I, I think at the beginning it's uh there's like um, people go to UCB. there's like a little bit of a mixture of oh my goodness i want to do this so bad which is where i came from and then the other part is like i think this will help me get into you know amy got snl and cheated ucb and uh andy daly was on mad tv at the time and so you're like oh maybe this could be a training that could help me be better um ultimately what i found from it is that it helps all facets uh, of everything, it's helped my writing, it's helped my acting, uh, you know, and it kind of, you know, plays into real life stuff, just the idea of saying yes and things, and like listening to people, and, and uh, you know, being a part of a team. But I wonder, uh, from the beginning, I, what I had a problem with, and my teachers kept telling me over and over again, is that I, I just kept saying jokes. I kept telling jokes as opposed to saying yes to what was happening in the scene, to add to it. Uh, I think it was because I was nervous and I wanted people to like me as bad as I can. And I, I uh, was so scared of, you know, letting things freeze. And then slowly you learn that. And then you have the, these teachers that, like, I had a teacher named Billy Merritt that was great. And I took a class with Ian Roberts. Um, and he just made it seem so simple. Like I was overthinking everything. And he made it, he's like, I can do a scene with anything. Like it can be an object here. And if I add truthfully to that object, I can create a scene. And I remember there was a thing where he called on me and I came up to class, he's like, don't try to be funny. And this is at a time where I was starting to get better at it. He's like, don't try to be funny, just react normally to everything I say and I guarantee we'll find something. And I was like, all right, great. And then we did and it was hilarious and it it made you relax a little bit. I think the second you find yourself a a little bit more relaxed and more confident about yourself on stage, you take these certain risks as an improviser and you find, you find which risks pay off and which feel like your voice, and you kind of start learning like how to be how to be the best version of uh, the improviser that you know you could be. Your skill set that allows you to be, and how to stretch and how to make it bigger. Um, but it was it's, it's definitely a growing process, as as it is with you know up or writing movies or acting. It's like get up there, fail a ton, uh, learn from those failures, get up there again, and, and slowly find your voice and see you know where you fit.
2: How has that helped you, and how has that changed your comedy writing from uh, your life before you were into improv?
3: It pushes me to, like, see things a little bit differently, and what we were trained to do is find the game of the scene. In Upright Citizens Brigade, you're trying to find the game of the scene, the thing that's funny in the scene. Learning when to hit it, learning when to get away from it, giving it time to breathe, and hit it again. And patterns, and teaching you patterns and game. And I think that really comes through in, in writing, and helps with callbacks, and helps with... Establishing these characters and giving them things to come back to so you know who they are and what they represent and stuff like that Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. It's really interesting and and I think too from what I've seen is that you can be real even in an unreal situation Where as long as you're tethered to some sort of sense of authenticity uh, It doesn't matter how crazy the scene is That's exactly
3: correct. You build a character and you put them in a world and that character is acting as that character would in that world
2: Sounds like by doing improv enough you can appeal to the audience. in It's not going to be definite, but you can sort of know rhythmically how to appeal to an audience.
3: That's interesting. I never thought about that. There's always that chance when you go out on stage, if you're going out with nothing that you will bomb. Which is the same with stand-up and stuff like that. But I think the little difference with stand-up is you're doing something that maybe you you did in a different place and it killed. So you know that it can kill. In improv, you're coming in with literally nothing. You have no idea. If someone gives you a suggestion of, you know, fighter pilot or whatever, there's a good chance you're going to be doing scenes, you know, in a plane or blah, blah, blah. And you're literally making up. So you, there's a chance that it could not be, you know, that it couldn't be funny. I've done like a thousand shows, probably more. And, you know, none. I, I mean, one time ever I did a Showtime special that was improv. And so there's one. There's one thing that's that's out there, and it's with people who weren't really improvisers. It was with about the, the cast of Housewives, which was Cheeto, Kristen Bell, and then Josh Watson, and then I got a couple improvisers that were on the show. But um, it, it is interesting to say. I love the idea that you're giving the audience something that exists in that moment. They're the only ones that will ever see it like that, and then it'll disappear forever. Oh, I love that.
2: How rare is that but, these days, you know? It just doesn't
3: I mean, it's, it's truly impossible. And it's also like everybody's filming things with phones, but if it's at Largo or at UCB, you're not allowed to film it. So you're literally, you're having an experience just with the audience. So there are those moments that when you have like a great show, you're like, oh man, it would be great. It would be great to have that. But I, I love the idea of... They're coming in there knowing that you're going to give them something that will only exist in that moment and then forever disappear. And I think that's part of the contract that you're like that you're doing with them. And of course, when the show goes like, "Oh, eh, I could have done better," you're like, "I'm happy that it that disappears forever." But it is interesting to look back at thousands or thousands of performances, and there's nothing tangible to touch. And if anybody explains the shows they saw, it's not, the hardest thing in the universe is to explain improv. You can't do it. It's like near impossible.
2: You almost talk like it's um, religious sand art that sort of dissipates after it's it's done. Where you enjoy it in the moment, but you know that like everything else is not going to last. I mean, you just made this very depressing. Instead of talking <laughs> about the joy,
3: instead of talking about the joy, you literally, Mike, you just said we're all going to die. What's the point of anything? Is what I got. To I say.
2: I, well, I, even worse than that, I'm about to die in the next month. I have um, stage four. Are you kidding? Yeah, I'm kidding. See, that's my no end Oh, my problem. God. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was so dark. I was
3: like, there's no way this person no, would no. not have said one dark thing.
2: See, now that's that I, I have OCD, and now that I said that, I'm going to have to do a lot of ticks later to sort of hope that... Great, thing. amazing.
3: How, how how deep is your obsessive-compulsive disorder? Is it a matter of touching things a certain amount of time, or is it a matter of just anxiety and worry? Uh,
2: a tremendous amount of anxiety. I have a tremendous fear of germs... Of um, vomiting, of um, travel. Oh, that's interesting. Of people vomiting on you, or are you vomiting? No, either. I mean, listen. When you live in New York, it's part of the plan, you know. Um, right. There's always some kid who gets on in Chinatown who throws up. Everyone's used to that. But it was it was projectile vomiting on the on this Chinese kid, and he did it so close to me that is sort of sort of pushed me into an outer realm of OCD. I actually wrote about this for the New York Times that ever since then it's sort of like I was catapulted into some sort of bizarre OCD world that I could never escape it's just worse on how, the how old how old were you when it started i was 11 when it started and moving to the city new york city made it a lot lot worse but you know i'm the guy on the train with a um paper towel holding onto the pole you know i'm that guy oh wow
3: you're really going for it
2: yeah yeah i'm jack nicholson and as good as it gets
3: do you find that it, that it has a major life suffer in negative ways
2: well, you know, I used to think so, but then when I started interviewing people, I've noticed that 75, well, and this is a rough estimate, I would say three-quarters, 75% of those I've interviewed have OCD, and whether they're writers or in comedy, and what I've noticed is that it's an energy, and if you can funnel that energy into something positive, which is writing every day and creating and doing something, then it becomes a very powerful thing, rather than circling the drain with ticks. Yeah, by the way, I
3: I, I have some form of it as well. And the idea of just just like, it it helps me with my writing because I'll be like, you'll have to keep writing and stuff like that. I like finishing things. I don't like having things unfinished. I think it's very prevalent in writers and I think it's very, very prevalent in comedians. It's not as daunting as uh, uh, your case seems to be a little bit more severe, but the idea of having a little bit there I think is the anxiety of failure, of like, oh my god, I got to do this, or duh, 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 and that keeps driving you. It's almost like a, a spiral, like a behavioral, a cognitive behavioral
2: therapist type yeah, thing, where it's like exactly. Yeah. You know. What you do is not a traditional job. I mean, it's a hustle. So I would think the anxiety, in that sense, is you know you're not showing up at an office park off of I-270 and doing the same thing every day. You're doing something totally different, and the future is kind of open. So. Having some sort of anxiety, like you just said, I would think could only help you propel forward rather than stagnating.
3: I had thought about that, the idea of that, that's a thing, like uh, I remember at the very beginning, I wanted to do this so bad. I like, uh, when I started doing it, when I started figuring out this was a thing, when I was in college, I, took, I did improv, and then I was forced to um, audition for the play because I took an acting class. I was just about to get cum out but I needed like another A. And all the football guys in my school were like, "Take this, take this acting class this is what we take to make sure we don't fail out." I was <laughs> like, "Amazing! I'll take it to try to get cum laude." And so I took it, and your first audition for the play, and it was Caucasian Chalk Circle by Brecht, and um, I got one of the lead roles in it, and I was pretty good at it. You know, I was very green and very scared, and uh, never had to memorize anything in my life, and I had to memorize so many words, so. But I remember doing it and doing improv and being good at improv, short form improv at the beginning, and me me having the balls from that to be like, okay, I'm gonna try this. I'm going to go for this. And then all I wanted to do was this. I did not want to fail so badly. So when I started, I did any... Place that would have me. I wrote. I freelanced an article for Wizard magazine. I freelanced an article for Toy Fair magazine. Um, I wrote a postcard book called Breaking Bad News of Baby Animals, yeah, and it's so uh, yeah, and it sold one hundred fifty thousand copies. But like because there were so few words, it wasn't allowed to be on any bestseller <laughs> But it's like, um, so I started doing anything I could put my hand in because I just wanted to a make money to pay rent and be. I wanted to do it so bad that I wanted to give myself every single opportunity, so I never went to sleep. I used to wake up at uh, 6 a.m., write jokes, got monologue jokes for Letterman, freelance monologue jokes and back them in, and then go work at the security office at Letterman, and then afterwards go work um, as an intern at Upright Citizens Brigade, and then do the show at midnight, and then, you know, like, go home and sleep maybe four and a half hours and repeat, repeat, repeat. And it was one of my favorite times of my life. Uh, I, I wonder if you interviewed so many people, I wonder if there's another mathematical reasoning to this, but I did improv with this group called Hot Sauce at the beginning. It was me, a gentleman named Adam Pally, and a guy named Gilazari, two very, very funny people. And nobody really paid attention to us, and then we did this we did this show where one team uh, improvises against another team, <laughs> and if you win, you will the next week. And uh, they wouldn't put us on house teams yet, and we did that show, and I remember the first time winning, and it feeling so exciting and so big and getting the first huge laughs you know, from an audience and being like, oh my God, and being so excited. Um, and then that, that that has to be some of the most fun I've ever had in my entire life when you look back on it. Or the hustle to get where I'm at because I had nothing and I was just trying anything and you're, you're failing with all your you know peers and stuff like that. So um, I always wonder why that always feels bigger than, you know, doing a movie, which of course is so exciting, but it, it becomes a job, and at the beginning it's like, oh my god, there's a chance that maybe one day I'll be on stage with blank, you know what I mean? Well, I think you were,
2: at that time, that is exciting. I mean, it was like when I first got published, you know, in college, I couldn't fucking believe it, you know, and then I, you, you can tell at that point that you can get on that spaceship, that it's it's possible. And
3: that's exactly correct. It's the idea that maybe there's a chance. I, mean, I think that's correct. Maybe there's a chance that I could do this. And that's, that's where all the, it goes from there's no way to maybe there's a chance,
2: right? Right, exactly. And then there's also a factor of because no one in my family has ever done this, I better work as hard as they did at their jobs, nine to five jobs. And if, it, if That is exactly correct.
3: And also I treat I treat comedy, not comedy, I treat my writing and my acting stuff. If I I get the money through Friday, I am working from when I wake up to when I go to sleep. And, um, I, and even, or, or, you know, like 9 to 5 or way more just because of the, what this job is, but if I'm not working, if I don't have an acting job, I am sitting down in front of my computer writing because everybody else in the universe is working on those days. Do you know what I mean? Why would I take the day off when everybody else yeah. is working?
2: Right. I mean, it, it, when you do something like this, it, it's almost like you join the... I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about in general. It's almost like you join the carnival and you're off the, the path. And because of that you have to work harder I mean you're on your own and there's no one to tell you what you what you have to do what you don't have to do and one of the things that I tell young writing students is you just you really have to work hard I mean anyone you see out there whether it's David Darris or anyone they're writing every single day and they're not really taking much of a break this is a hard thing to do so you really yeah. have to just keep moving forward the way that I
3: thought was when I was taking improv and I started to get pretty good at it. I looked around and there were always people that were funnier than me. So I was like, the only way I'm gonna succeed is if I work harder than everybody else. And there's a, some, I mean, Mark Jackson, who was a New York Knicks point guard said it once, and I'm certain it wasn't him the first person, but the idea of uh, my dad used to say too, her is like, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But at the beginning, I think, when I had endless energy and I was a little kid and didn't have as many personal responsibilities, I loved working. It made me feel like it made me feel like I was earning my, you know, my writing badge or my acting badge. Like I loved the idea of I never stopped and I loved it so much. And as I got older the idea of giving yourself time to travel or meet people. Give yourself something to write about. Exactly. Like, right. yeah. go out, go on a date. Even just walk around and observe. The very beginning of my improv thing I was so I got so obsessed with improv. I loved it so much that I would wake up, I, you know, I'd write these things for uh, Letterman, and then I'd go work at Letterman, and then I'd go I'd intern at UCB, then I'd watch UCB, then I'd take a class at UCB, and then in these classes, I found uh, after a little bit that I was doing scenes that seemed similar to scenes that I'd done in the past. And I was like, I, I'm in this weird cycle where I could feel myself leaning on things. And a uh, teacher, a woman named Christina Gaussis, who came from Chicago, I explained to her what was happening, and she said, Tell me your day. And I explained her day. And she goes, Oh, you're improvising off of improv scenes.
2: Right. Yeah. You're
3: not improvising off of your life. You're not improvising off of watching improv or watching Letterman or what. You're just, you have to have something to improvise about. And I, it was a huge moment for me. I opened up my eyes. I was like, Oh my God, you're right. And I remember I like went out that day I went to Central Park or I went to a zoo or I ate at a different place or, you know what I mean? I just, I lived my life and then. After like a couple days of that, when I went back to improvising, it was it felt far easier. You know what I mean?
2: Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, this is this is something I noticed interviewing the old timers. You know, Irv Brecker, Larry Gelbart, Mel yeah. Brooks. They went to war, and and they lived lives on the streets. And when they came to comedy, it was based off of experience and character. What I find with a lot of young writers is they may know every episode of The Simpsons, but. You're not going to be able to launch off of that for something that's going to be lasting comedically.
3: I think exactly. I think I was very fortunate to not know that I could do this as a kid because I just, I, you know, elementary school and high school, public, public both. Um, and then I went to college, and I studied psychology and anthropology, and I got, you know, a degree in those two things, and and uh, and I didn't study this. I didn't study how to do this. So when I come into it, I come into it from the point of view of someone that has that, uh, knowledge and that background, and I think if I just studied film from when I was a kid till now, I would just, it's just like analyzing things as opposed to being in the moment of things and whatever. Um, of course there are human beings that can do both, like, if you're aware of it, if you're aware this is what I want to do, and at the same time you're living a normal life so you can get things, uh, you know, to, to imprint things in your mind, but, um... Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really uh, important, and probably a reason what makes you a good writer is that you come into it from someone that grew up in Virginia, and Maryland, and you can utilize those experiences to help form your writing as an adult, you know what I mean?
4: Yeah, I mean,
2: in retrospect, I worked retail until I was 25, and I worked in a record store behind a housing project. And at, at the time, I was absolutely miserable, but looking back now, there's so many stories that came out of it. And it's, oh, yeah. But I think it's, it's important, too, to not spend every night watching tv is to get out there and go to a bar or meet meet new people or just walk around like you said and observe um, i think there's too much insular activity sometimes going on and until you go out there and meet different characters the characters you create even if they're nonfiction, aren't going to necessarily be as uh, fully fleshed out as they could be
3: and also i feel like when you when you write characters it's going to be some form of you know you have to ground even the craziest character has something to ground him or her right. so it's so like sure. you see those people and you start finding little things even if it's just a tip or even if it's just like a a it's like a way a way this person thinks or you'll use that to funnel into something else as opposed to if you're watching Seinfeld every day and you're just like oh I'm gonna make a character like Kramer Like no, you can find things in different people.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, I always think of that character in Goodfellas. Uh, Johnny, two times, he said everything twice. I'm going to go get the paper. Yes, of course, yeah. Who would have written that? I mean, that was obviously someone they knew, which is more fascinating to me than any quip some fictional character can come up with.
3: I agree. I I love that stuff. It's like a little bit you do with a friend that you come up with, like, oh, and then you find, like, um, you can put that into characters or feelings or beats. I love little moments, so I have on my iPhone, I have the notes app, and I just write. Any idea that comes in my head when I'm walking around. And the weird thing is, although I haven't really thought about this before, so I have ideas for, I have a line of dialogue that I think is funny, or a line of dialogue that I think is sweet, or I have an idea for a book or a movie or whatever. And then, to be honest, I write all these things down, and then I never look at the notes. I never look at them. I never use them. I don't understand, I never really thought about this, but like, I'll write it all down and then, the only time I use them is if I have to start from scratch and I have nothing for a movie or a TV show. And it's like, okay, well, I guess let me look at some ideas. But it, they become so many that you, I really don't look at them. I wonder why that is. But the process of writing them down, I find to be very helpful.
2: I wonder if it's if it's reaching into that meditative state where you're not back at school working off an outline. You're just sitting down and letting your mind and experiences take you wherever.
3: Yeah, and I also think it takes a little bit of pressure off. I think, um, at the beginning, I'll write, rewrite, 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 rewrite so much, which is of course a huge part of writing. But sometimes you get in your own way, and I, I you know, I've helped produce some shows and watched some other creators. You got to make sure you're not getting in, in your own way, and you have to. When you write it, and you're like, "This is fine," move on. You can always come back to it. Don't spend hours. I feel like the people that have those screenplays that have never finished, yeah. they go over the... The sessions over and over and over again, and and they just and they can't move on to the next one because they don't think it's like, who cares? cares? You're going to write another movie. Every movie, no movie is going to be perfect. Even the most. Perfect films of all time have flaws, you know what I mean? Or you'll find it out on the day. Yeah.
2: I mean, either it's going to work or it won't. And the fact that the the, the joke on the 45th page that you've been mulling over for a year is going to work or not, it doesn't matter. And you have to pull the trigger. You, as some, I mean, I know so many people, I'll run into them after years, like, hey, man, what are you working on? And it's the same script or the same article. It's like, you got to just move forward. You cannot. You have to let it go.
3: You have to let it go. And also, if you're having, if you're stuck on it so much, write something else. So get this one done so you can write something else, you know what I mean?
2: This is the stuff that everyone always has to teach themselves, you know? No no teacher, Mm -hmm. I wish a teacher had said that, because I did, you know, when I first got out of school, work on the same thing for months or even years. But looking back, it's like, what the fuck was I doing?
3: One of the biggest things that shaped my uh, childhood was Calvin and Hobbes. Really? Because I was very hesitant to read, because I found myself very bored by reading when I was a kid. Mm. Um, you know, cuts an hour, I have to read scripts every day, but... Um, and I would read Calvin and Hobbes, and I found it so funny and interesting, and um, I loved the way it was drawn. Bill Watterson is like a genius. He's, he's one of the biggest influences in my life, which is crazy, because as a kid, that's all I would just read them over and over again and they were all in the bathroom. So anytime I went to the bathroom we'd read them over and over again and over of the collections of these books. And it was a huge it was a huge thing for me. That and Farside and The Simpsons um, were big ways that uh, I shaped my comedy, my voice.
2: Well what was it? It was it was the marry it was the characters and the marriage of the sadness in childhood and the happiness?
3: So Calvin now for me it was the idea of this kid that had endless energy and was smarter than everybody else. Like he was he Bill Larson wrote Calvin like you know one of the great minds in the world when they were philosophize, um it would be like these incredible things that you never think about and even as a kid when i didn't understand it there would always be a funny joke like a panel away or something like that and to me it was the biggest thing then as i grew older and saw how deep the words went like they were far deeper far more interesting than um as a kid i was reading them do you have your five favorite comedic TV shows? Do you do this or no? Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you could think your five favorite all time.
2: Well, let me think about it, but meanwhile, you're locked in Lotus, so let's go. What are your five?
3: Right. It would start with uh, Larry Sanders, which yeah. I think is one of the best TV comedies ever written and ever acted and all that stuff. I think Jeffrey Tambor is one of the best characters on yeah, TV of all time. Yeah. Hank Kingsley. Uh, Simpsons for me was an enormous, enormous one. I loved, the same way when I watched Larry Sanders. I was like, "Holy shit! This feels like it was made for me." Like, are other people laughing at this? Like, I would have that. It was the same way I felt when I watched uh, The Office, the UK, the UK version of The Office for the first time. Absolutely, I could not believe yeah, that it was a TV show because it felt like I was like, I'm, "I must be the only one that knows about that." You know what I mean? Yeah. And it felt special. Uh, Arrested Development, I thought, was so brilliant. I think Mitch Hurwitz is a genius. And then uh, Freaking Geeks, Chaz Apatow and Paul Feig's TV show. Uh, for me, I thought it was a different level. When I when I watched that, I was uh, blown away. And then, to, and I think in all those you'll find a great character. And I think Freaks and Geeks* to me, Bill, uh, the Martin Starrs character, I think it was Bill Habbichuk, Habbichuk or whatever, I think is one of the great characters on TV as well.
2: Yeah, a lot. Of, we have a lot of overlap. I mean, when I first saw *The Office* UK, and I told this. To Ricky Gervais when I interviewed him was like listening to Sergeant Pepper's for the first time. You know, in the- it's
3: really special. It's really because uh, you because you know what I mean Sanders does a little bit of it, but it's like it gets in those moments that it's like it feels so real and so funny. And those actors are in such control that it feels like. By the way, you're talking about how it feels like a little improvised, although I'm sure it wasn't. But to whatever Steve Merchant and uh, Ricky Gervais did, it felt like you're just. A camera happened to be there while these guys are going crazy. Amazing! Um, I love that feeling, and they are part of Sanders that felt that way also.
2: Absolutely, yeah. That's another show I loved, and Freaks and Geeks I thought and still think is genius. But the the one thing you didn't mention, which is a huge influence on me, was very Cheers. well. I love that, but very, very specifically, whenever Chris Elliott was on late night.
3: Oh my God, he was phenomenal. <laughs> he's he was phenomenal. He started as a writer for Letterman, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, he did. And um, the stuff he did, especially early on, like the the scary as it was funny, the guy under the seats, like that stuff, I still think is ahead of its time.
3: He's he's there's some things, man. Like the comeback, the first the first season of the Comeback when it came out was it was just too ahead of its time. It was so yeah. well done. Yeah. It's so because it's a comedy but it's such a drama as well and you're like so nervous and you feel so bad for every moment and it's so brilliant that's another that's another TV show I think that if it came out at the right time it would have gone on forever a great because, show
2: I totally agree oh my god
3: and the writing staff if you think of the writing staff of some of these shows writing staff of season 4 and 5 of The Simpsons three, four, five was incredible I and mean, even going and watching Josh Weinstein and then Bill Oakley you just mm-hmm. write some of the funniest things ever and then Conan's on that and then You think about Larry Sanders' show writing staff with Apatow and all these, like,
2: incredible people. And then the staff of Dana Carvey's show, the writing staff.
3: Literally everybody special in the universe is on that writing staff. Is there, like, a sentence that someone said in an interview that really has stuck with you and
2: has changed you? The people that affected me the most are the older generation, uh, Larry Gelbart, Irv Brecker, Peg Lynch. These people who, when I emailed them, they didn't have assistants get back to me. They didn't have their PR. They got back to me right away on their AOL.com accounts. I mean, these were people who, they look at it as a career. They look at it as a hustle. And they don't look at themselves as being any better. Like Larry Galbar is the sweetest guy in the world. And that guy was brilliant. I mean, he was flat out brilliant. So to be able to talk yes. to these people um, and you know, before they died, it was an honor for me to be able to talk to these people. Yeah. What are you working on nowadays? What, what can we expect from you? I just wrapped four movies. I
3: finished Holy four God movies. I, I did them, yeah. And um, some are smaller roles and some are bigger roles. And one's, one's a co-lead. And, uh, one's for Netflix called Happy Anniversary. A guy named Jared Stern, who's a great writer, directed his first film. That was coming on Netflix. I did a movie where I got to have a role with uh, Jeremy Irons. Who wow. I find uh, I really look up to him. And by the way, that's someone who loved the idea of the improvisation aspect of acting because when we did scenes we would just be in them and it was he's he is so good. It's insane. Yeah. Um, okay. and then I did a movie with Sam, Sam Rockwell who, where I got to one of the leads in that movie which was I think he's a genius yeah. upon geniuses. Who knows who knows uh And that's coming out, and then I did one more, and then I, I, you know what it is, I've sold a lot of movies to studios, but they just haven't been made, and um, there's nothing I can do about it, but hopefully one of those gets made, and in the meantime, I got a book coming out in October, it's called Things You Should Already Know About Dating, You Fucking Idiot, (laughs) and it's almost like a millennial's guide to dating, and every tenth page is put your fucking phone down. And the whole idea is uh, me and my friend Laura Moses wrote it, and I thought it'd be great to have a girl's point of view and a guy's point of view in it. And there's a 100 tips about dating, like before the date, during the date, after the date, if you're living together, blah, blah, blah. And then after each tip, it's a girl and a guy discussing the tip, either arguing with it, saying it's bad, saying it's good, showing what happens if you follow it, showing what happens if you don't follow it. And there's an illustration, so the whole idea is we're kind of like making it like, Treating you like a dumb idiot. Like here's a stick, it's a stick figure illustration, a tip, and then us going back and forth. I think it's going to be. I, I really like the way it came out. We just got our proofs. We just did oh, let's edit. We, the galleys are coming out. It's like I'm. I'm really excited. And that one's with Hachette Books. That comes out in October. And then um, I'm, and then this is the first time that instead of selling a uh, my next screenplay to a uh, studio, I'm writing it by myself with the hopes of maybe. You know, like, um did Happy Anniversary for Netflix. Maybe there's a way for me to, you know, maybe direct and star in one of my own guys. Uh, uh, which, you know, I got, uh, so I'm, I'm probably two to three weeks away from finishing that film. And then, um, that's it. I helped produce a French TV show and trying to just keep busy. And uh, I, I love acting. So I'm trying to figure out the next TV show I'm going to do, which I'm working on for a little bit, and then just trying to grab movies. i much like what you said, the, the whole idea of hustling and, Having every iron in the fire that I can possibly still, oh. I still maintain that thing.
2: Ben Schwartz, um, you're I, working the hustle, man. I, I really am impressed. I mean, you're doing it like it should be, and you're doing it well.
1: You're not just popping shit out, but it's, it's good stuff, so.
3: Thanks, man. I, from, coming from you, that means quite a deal, so I really appreciate that.
1: To find out more about Ben, follow him on Twitter, at Rejected Jokes. Next up, an interview with Caroline Weaver. The owner of CW Pencil Enterprise, a shop dedicated to a plethora of different types of pencils and stationery located here in New York City. In this short interview, Caroline and Mike spoke by phone.
2: Where did your, how did your interest, I was about to say obsession, but let's say interest in pencils, how did this begin?
5: It began when I was a child in a small town in Ohio. My mother is really into office supplies and art supplies. Um, She's Very much an analog type of person, as am I, because she raised me that way. And she always had good pencils around her house and really... Preach the value of having really great tools to work with. When we were kids, the the two things that she would always buy us without question were always art supplies and books. And so for that reason, we we're always surrounded by lots of really great like art supplies and office supplies and pencils. And it just kind of grew on me. I don't even think there's like one particular time when I decided like this is the thing I'm interested in. Um, it's just the thing I like. I like I have always just appreciated how like tactile pencils are. I was
2: trying to think of this earlier today. Why do I like pencils so much? more so than pens. Why do you like pencils more than pens? Because there are people out there who collect pens.
5: More so than pencils, I would say. Um, That's a completely different demographic. I like pencils because they're simple. You don't have to worry about it exploding on a plane. You don't have to worry about it running out of ink or breaking. Um, It is what it is. In a nutshell, a stick of graphite cased inside two pieces of wood. That's all it is. Um, there's no real way that it could, like, malfunction to the point that you just simply can't use it. Um, so for practical reasons, a pencil has always made a lot of sense to me. Um, but I, I also really like that writing with a pencil is a really sensory experience. I like that it smells like something, and it feels like something, and it even sounds like something. Um, and that you have to sharpen it to make it work, and then eventually it just disappears, and you're left with a tiny stub, which is almost just basically a souvenir of whatever you had done
2: with your pencil. I was thinking, until I had a child, that perhaps it's sort of a lost thing, pencils, but I brought my daughter into the store, and as you saw, she loves pencils, and I love the fact that it's not just about electronics, that she can go to a pencil and feel it and feel that tactile sensation. There's almost more of a a stronger link between page and the hand when, when you're writing, physically writing, than you are when you're typing.
5: Yeah, I think a lot of that kind of has to do with the like, freedom of using an object that like has has hardly any confinement. Like if you're on a computer, you you have a choice like what typeface you're going to use, what program you're going to use, any of those sort of things. But, but with a pencil, you can kind of do whatever you want. If you want to scribble all over your page, you can do that, and it takes two seconds, and it's you can see it, and it's right there. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think for me, at least, it's a, it's a freedom thing. Freedom to make mistakes and freedom to be as creative as you can possibly be in a way that you, that maybe a, a computer or a phone or a tablet won't what like, can't allow you to just because of the constraints of what you can and cannot do on a computer. And especially I think with the pencil, I guess a crucial thing to mention is that you can't erase it. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there is a real freedom to be creative and to also be okay with making mistakes or yeah. to write things or draw things that are a bit more daring even.
2: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, when, when you look, when one looks at a manuscript that's that's been edited by pencil, there's, it's almost a work of art and you can see where the mind is working and going in a direction that maybe isn't so vertical or horizontal that you would see if it was done on, on a computer.
5: Definitely a lot more interesting to look at.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's almost more free-form. All right, let's talk about my absolute favorite pencil, the Blackwing yeah. Palomino Blackwing. Now, you are one of the world's foremost experts on this. Can you talk about what this pencil meant to writers in the mid-20th century, including Nabokov, and what happened to the company?
5: So, the Blackwing 602, um, now made of Palomino, as uh, so the Palomino Blackwing 602, um, was originally made by a company called Eberhard Faber. Eberhard Faber was a descendant of the Faber family in Germany um, whose company eventually evolved into Faber Castell as we know it now. And he came to the U.S. in the 1800s to start up a U.S. subsidiary and ended up starting this whole a whole different pencil brand. And eventually his sons, when they took over the company, made this pencil in the early 1900s called the Blackwing 602. And um, at the time, pencils were pimples were pretty much figured out. People were kind of all making them the same way with um, a core made out of graphite and clay and water. It was fire- fired in a kiln um, to make it hard and usable. Um, but the Blackwing 602 is regarded as at least America's first very premium writing pencil. And the reason why is because it had wax added into its core to make it to make it smoother. And that's where the motto of the Blackwing that's also printed on the Palomino version, um, half the pressure, twice the speed comes from. The idea was that it was a faster writing pencil. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the marketing meeting about this. That would have been really funny. Um, but yeah, so it was marketed as a fast, efficient, smooth comfortable writing pencil and the thing that most people recognize it for is the ferrule on the end and in case anybody doesn't know um, a ferrule is the metal piece that holds the eraser onto a pencil and on the black wing the ferrule is flattened and it has a rectangular eraser that fits into it with the help of a little clamp so that you can pull the clamp out and it removes the eraser and you can replace it or kind of pull it up and scrunch it in there and use it until it's very very short and this was a favorite of writers because it was a beautiful pencil it was flat, it didn't roll off of a table it was smooth easy comfortable to write with it was also just a little bit nicer than anything else that was out there and it was always popular it was never when it was around originally it was never like a super super famous pencil and you have to remember too that this was at the height of the pencil industry in america the pencil industry was booming there were lots and lots of companies making very good quality american pencils Eventually, Eberhard Faber was bought out by Faber-Castell. At the time, the machine that made the clips that hold the eraser into the ferrule of the black pencil was broken, and there were, there, I mean, there was a sizable backstock of clamps um that could be used for black wings. and so Faber-Castell continued to make the black 602 at least through the early 90s until so they eventually ran out and just decided to nix the whole idea altogether and so the black link disappeared for a couple of decades until Palomino which is a company in California brought it back
2: how many original pencils exist
5: um, I'm not entirely sure. They are disappearing very quickly. I can tell you that. And the I think the reason why must be because when they, um, whenever Heartbabel was first bought out and when they started to go out of production, the people who used this pencil, the, the, it had a very small, um, very, very, very loyal cult following. And so um, by the time this pencil was discontinued, the type of people who were using it were also the type of people who were buying them by, like the growth and also they were the type of people who were using them up and so for that reason there aren't really a ton left you can occasionally find them on ebay i buy them from collectors sometimes and sell them in my shop but they're becoming really hard to come by especially the older ones especially any like pre-1960 black wings
2: now can you notice a difference between a current palomino black wing and one from the mid-20th century
5: Definitely. There's definitely a difference. The, the Palomino Blackwing is a fine pencil. It really is. It's something that we call the gateway pencil in our shop because it's, it's the one that always gets people into fancy pencils because of the story and because it's so cool looking. But the current incarnation of the Blackwing is a little bit too soft, or not necessarily too soft, but its point retention isn't as good as that of the original Blackwing. The original Blackwings, the way that they were designed changed very subtly. Throughout the course of its existence. And the Blackwing that exists now is painted the same gray color, has a very similar typeface. The ferrule is um, just brass, whereas some of the earlier versions of it had a painted black band around the bottom of the ferrule, which was a really nice touch, I thought. But yeah, they're, still, they're definitely not the same. There's still people who swear that the Blackwing 602, the original one, was the best pencil ever made. I don't know that I agree with that.
2: What? How much do those go for now?
5: From 35 or $40 each up to like $200 each for one of the really, really, really old ones.
2: What would you recommend I go from for the Palomino Blackwing? What would you recommend I get into next?
5: Assuming that you like the Palomino Blackwing, it's a softer pencil. It's definitely softer than a number two pencil or anything that most people are used to. So from there, I would probably... I would probably lead you to something Japanese, maybe one of the really, really high-quality Japanese pencils. Um, maybe the the Tombow Mono 100, which is a pencil made um, made in Japan. It was introduced in the 1960s. The finish on it is ridiculous, like the the paint detail. On it has this little gold band around the end. It's an impeccably designed pencil and. What's special about it is that its core is crazy, crazy, crazy smooth. Um, it has 10 billion particles per cubic millimeter in its graphite core. So they mill that graphite until it's as fine as it like can possibly be. I
2: am salivating um, right now. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> really, I'm excited about this. I'm going to get those. It's
5: a really cool pencil. It's like probably like the sexiest pencil we sell. Oh, my goodness. It's black is. with like white and gold detailing. It's so, it's so nice. I'll
2: um, order that. You had an interesting quote, uh, I think it, it was either in Bloomberg or New York Times, about how you didn't want to be in a shopping district, that you wanted to sort of be off to the side. Why was that? What was your decision for that?
5: I suppose a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are in New York City, where gentrification is a real thing, and neighborhoods are labeled for for being, I, I guess, known for certain things. And... Um, I mean, I, I run a shop where I expect people to come and buy things, but it was important to me to not necessarily be off the beaten track per se, but um, to be just be in a neighborhood, just be in a neighborhood where I could know, that, know my neighbors, where there are tourists, but it's not overrun by tourists, where um, crazy things still happen on the street sometimes, and there are businesses, but not too many businesses, where it's not people trying to be... I guess so. And competitive about making our neighborhoods as great as it can possibly be, just where just where people exist and where people might just happen to be passing through. I like the idea that a shop like mine is one that just has to be discovered. And I, I'm aware that it's a very niche thing, and that it's. it's I mean, and it it is it, a really pretty shop. It's a well-designed, very pretty shop. And I was aware of the fact that a shop like that, especially with a young shop owner. Um, could be categorized if it say if it was in like Williamsburg or something. It could be categorized as being like like hipster or like trendy or like feeding off this entire like analog demographic of young people. And that's not what I wanted. I just wanted to be in a neighborhood that felt like New York.
2: Now, let's talk about something I'm very excited about. The book is called The Perfect Pencil, The Untold Story of a Cultural Icon from Gestalten out of Berlin, Germany. How did this come about? Was was it something you've always wanted to do, or did the store segue into into writing
5: a book? It definitely is something that the store segued into. I, I had always intended on writing something about the pencil, mostly because it is the thing that I know the most about. And I'd had a lot of customers talk about it with me before, but it was something I'd planned on doing in 10 years. It wasn't something I was planning on doing two years into owning the shop.
2: Did you write this book with a pencil?
5: I did write this book with a pencil. I wrote it in um, spiral-bound notebook notebooks with a, with a pencil. Um, I tried to choose my pencils carefully. I was writing a section on karen dash. I used a karen dash pencil. If I was writing a section on novelty pencils, I used the novelty pencil. And uh, um, the book is illustrated. It's um, full of lovely illustrations by Oriana Fenwick, who's an illustrator that the publisher hired. And she illustrated all of the pencil stubs that I used to write the book. And those are the end pages oh, in the book. It's just this great. beautiful image of all of my pencil stubs.
2: Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's, I love behind-the-scenes stuff, and that, that's a great one.
5: The book starts um, with the discovery of graphite in the 16th century and goes until today. And it is about history. Um, And there is one other book that is about pencil history. It's called The Pencil. It was written by Henry Petrovsky in, I think, 1990, in the early 90s. And it is very comprehensive, it's very dense, it's very academic, it's about 400 pages long, it is everything one could ever want to know about the pencil. And so knowing that that exists, I kind of went into this trying to write something a little bit easier to digest for the average reader who's maybe not interested in knowing everything but just knowing like the really good bits. And yeah, it's just meant to be like a kind of fun, easy to read, um, really thorough history of on the pencil. And a lot of it is sort of a reflection on what the pencil's place is in the 21st century now that we don't need them.
2: Can you talk about the history? I'm fascinated by this this specific type of pencil because it's the most useful thing to use in this situation, the carpenter's pencil.
5: The way carpenter's pencil is made is basically the way that pencils were made before anyone figured out how to make them the way that we know them as. The the, The first known pencil, which dates back to the 1600s, is basically just like a rectangle of graphite, like is in a carpenter's pencil. And it's cased in um, kind of poorly with, like, blocks of wood on each side, open on one end. So, And for a long time, that's how people made pencils, because that's the only way they knew how. It was the easiest way to make them. Most of the history of the pencil in general is widely undocumented or very difficult to find. But they're made to fit into a tool belt. There are some that are very long, and I really haven't figured out why those ones are so long. There may be only two that I know of. Um, They're meant to sit behind an ear. They're meant to be able to be used sort of as a level. They're meant to be used as a straight edge. They're easy to cut with a knife, so they sharpen it with whatever you've got in your tool belt. A carpenter's pencil is a pretty, pretty great tool, but it's also the closest example we have to a very primitive pencil.
2: Now, I don't know if you are willing to talk about this, but when I was in the store, you gave me a bit of very exciting news
5: we are introducing a new pencil being made by Karen dash in switzerland we're calling it the editor and it is a pencil that is double-ended just like a blue and red pencil would be except instead of blue it has a really high quality hb graphite core on the other side so the idea is that you can You can write with this really nice pencil, and then when you're ready to mark something up or edit it, you just flip your pencil over. And you don't need to carry a regular pencil and a red pencil with you. But no, Mike, seriously, for the longest time, I I knew you as the red pencil guy.
2: (laughs) Really? Because that's all I wore. Yeah.
5: Well, yeah, and you would occasionally email and ask if there were any new red pencils.
2: When I heard about your store opening, it was exciting in a sense, because, you know, where else would I go to ask about this? And right away you sent me to uh, the perfect red pencil, which I use to this day. And actually, which I've turned on, I think I told you, to the entire Vanity Fair editorial staff. So you have that going for you as far as advertising. Thank you so much, Caroline. I'm going to order that. What is it? Tombow Bono? Tombow Mono 100. I will
5: send you a package when those editor pencils come in, and I will put those in there. Don't worry about ordering
2: them. Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. I'm a huge fan of of what you're doing. I'll be back soon, and I'm excited about uh, the new book and everything else. So congratulations on all the success, and uh, I'll talk
1: with you soon. I'll send you some more questions about red pencils.
5: Wonderful. Thank you for having me.
1: Find out more about Caroline and her shop at CWPencils.com. For our final interview of this episode, friend of the show Ian Goldstein speaks with comedian, host, and producer Phil Moore. Phil is probably best known as the host of the Nickelodeon game show Nick Arcade. After Nickelodeon, Phil went on to be a producer on the G4 Network, HGTV, BET, and much more. This Emmy award-winning host now has another project he's working on, and so Ian and Phil talked over Skype.
4: From a background of hosting Nick Arcade and writing and producing television shows, what was the thing that got you to want to do Battle Arcade?
0: Um, it is the, it, it is what I call the awesome 90s kids that are all grown up. Seriously, that really was the motivation. Um, I kind of like came into this whole thing of this new sort of 90s retro kind of resurgence thing kind of late into the game. I've only been doing it for like a couple of years, so I wasn't really aware of like the love that was still out there for a lot of these, you know, a lot of these old classic shows. So when I started making arounds rounds and making an appearance at gaming expos and, and, and cons and stuff like that, people would show up like by the hundreds and thousands and, and they kept talking about like, wow, Phil, wouldn't it be cool like if we had like today's technology and did a video game show? And the answer was like, yeah, yeah, that would be cool, you know? But the thing about uh, doing this new thing, uh, Battle Arcade, was this. Nickelodeon, still owns the right to Nick Arcade. Because, honestly, the first thing you would think is, let's just do a reboot. Let's just bring it back. So um, we couldn't just do, like, a complete rip-off without hearing some from attorneys and stuff. But we all play games now, and we're all not little kids anymore. That was the common thing. And with the technology being what it is today and the way graphics are, like, state-of-the-art, let's just come up with a structure for a game show. Which, honestly, that was the trick. Because it's not about, like, just playing video games. Twitch has some fantastic people on there where they're playing games, they're watching people play games, they're doing walkthroughs. But Nick Arcade was a game show, and all game shows have one common thread, and that is a structure. I don't care if it's Wheel of Fortune, Family Feud, or Jeopardy. When you're playing a game show, there's a structure in which, you know, you might be behind, but then in round two, oh, my gosh, You know, you flip the script and now you're behind and the other person's ahead and you never really know the outcome. But I got to tell you, I got to take my hat off. I got to I got to just kind of humbly bow in front of all of the people out there, all of the fans, um, because the inspiration for doing the show came from everybody's just just love for the old show and the realization that if you take this passion and hook it up with today's technology, you could have one serious kick butt show. Um, and so Battle Arcade became, first, you know, out
4: of that. For this, do you have more say in the games that are chosen? Or, especially because is crowdfunded, do you feel like you're more in control of what games to choose? Um, and if not, who, who would choose the games for this show?
0: Well, look, I'm the executive producer of this thing, and I have um, my, my team right now of uh, people working with me are people who are also people who come either from a uh, game show background and we all are video gamers ourselves. So, we will make the decision. Um, you know, uh, it's going to be established by the production staff, uh, you know, either either the producer who is in charge. Because, you know, once you get to the show actually being made, there are departments. You know, you'll have certain departments that handle various aspects of it. Right now, we're all pretty much doing everything. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing so many hats right now, it's not funny. <laughs> But, but that's because the show is not up. That's why we
4: have the crowdfunding on GoFundMe to get the show up and running. Do you still play? Do you still have time to play video games yourself? And uh, do you see it becoming less and less of just, oh, kids play that?
0: Uh, well, first of all, yes, I do play video games myself. And you are absolutely right. It's interesting that when you start doing a thing, it was like, you know, with the the bodybuilder, Luke Ferrigno. He used to work out all the time. He'd go into the gym. He'd work out six, eight hours a day. To, like, be this big super Hulk of a man, he gets the job now working on a TV show playing the Hulk, but the job takes too much time away to be in the gym like he used to be before he got the job. Um, It got to a point for a while doing X R K where I kind of, wasn't playing as, playing games as often as I was before the show. Um, and like you said, now here to 20 years later, I've been working as a writer, producer on a lot of things, including I was a producer for G4. <laughs> so I, that was like the ultimate dream come true. It was like the circle of life had gone around, Simba. You know, I started out in TV, hosting a TV show about video games. Now I'm, I'm, I'm a boss producing TV shows on the video game channel. I mean, I love doing Nick Arcade. To me, the show's had a premature death. I, I should have gone on at least a couple more years. I would have loved to have done it a little bit longer. It lasted two seasons, is that right? That is correct, yeah. And it had life afterwards because we did the Nickelodeon Live Tour, which put Guts and Nick Arcade together in a big arena tour. That was dope fun, so it got a little more life out of that, but with respect to new TV episodes, only two seasons why did it end only after two seasons there's a there's a lot of reasons because the show was a hit that was one of the things I have to tell you we were nominated for awards and stuff we had won a couple of awards and it was still like in the top five of Nickelodeon shows so I couldn't quite understand why it ended and it really was 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 disheartening because it hit its peak we didn't go out on our own terms but we didn't go out because of any type of problems or failure on the part of anybody connected to the show. Um, I can tell you that in children's television and kids' programming, there is, in some cases, not all, but in some cases, there's this idea of there's always a new group of people coming up as soon as the old group of people get too old. So, it's always going to be fresh. So, you don't necessarily have to keep cranking out a whole lot of episodes because the moment that the kids watching Nickelodeon are now going to MTV, there's a brand new bunch that simultaneously have stopped watching Nick Jr. and have come up to Nickelodeon. So, I know that is like a little um, a little part of like the philosophy in a lot of children's programming. But I got to tell you, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, I really do don't know um, with respect to decisions about the show. Nick Arcade was the very first show that I had ever done on television. So part of me was really trying to learn how to do a TV show. So if it didn't, if it wasn't under my list of things to do, I wasn't doing it. <laughs> you know, if it wasn't if it wasn't under the category of need to know, I had so much that was like you know working and trying to learn to do well. Um, that I didn't, you know, distract myself
4: with uh, stuff that really wasn't on my need to know list. You're taking advantage of the technological advances now. What was your thought at that time? Did it all seem to you guys as very advanced at the time? It was, it was. It wasn't even did we think it. It was.
0: Let me tell you something. It was only about three people that could actually understand how to make the show work, and that credit goes to the guys that created the show, uh, James Batziah and Karim Mette. These are a couple of guys they've been buddies since college they grew up together in New York they had known each other they were thick as thin and they were like two guys that just had this technical knowledge and they invented the program that made the videos on work you know I mean we think we take this VR stuff for granted now but it was never done before I want everybody who hears my voice to think about the first time you saw the dinosaur in Jurassic Park and understand that that had never been done before Now we watch movies and like 90% of it is CGI. And that's what Nick Arcade was like. I mean, for as um, comic bookish as it may look now, looking back at it, it had never been done before. These 2 Brainiacs, man, came up with this state-of-the-art innovative idea that revolutionized
4: computer gaming in this new uh, golden age that it was experiencing back in the 90s you yourself have a background in being a computer technician. You went to school for engineering. Did you could go into that a little bit about your experience prior to performing and prior to stand-up and hosting and then how it got you to Nick? Yeah. Well,
0: you know, I went to, um, uh, what got me down to Florida was I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. And, um, I got down to Florida cause I went to uh, a school in Daytona beach called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And, um, uh, I ended up uh, ultimately um, majoring in computer science. Um, I was one of those really fortunate guys that got a job in the field he was going to school for, and I was working for AT and at their brand new data center in Orlando. So it was just kind of like a fifty-minute drive over to start my career. And um, you know, I, you know, I thought I was doing a good thing here. You know, I was, I had a good job. I, I think I'd just gotten married, and um, the thing that uh, got me in that weird mode of shifting careers was a strike. I mean, it's really weird how something that you would look at as being kind of like a, a bad thing um, turns out to being a really positive, life-changing thing. I'm out there on the picket line. Um, none of us are making any money. We don't know how long the strike is, is going to go for. Um and you know we're out there actually having a good time (laughs) i mean you know when you're sitting around with your friends maybe you're at a barbecue and you're talking and you know you're saying stuff you're making each other laugh that's what we were doing on the ticket line i'm out there with a bunch of my colleagues and um you know a bunch of us are just like cracking each other up and one day somebody said hey man you know we're having way too much fun to be broke you know (laughs) and then Then somebody else said, yeah, y'all should take this act down to the comedy club. They just opened up a new comedy club here in Orlando called Bonkers. And um, I understand from listening to the radio commercial, they're uh, looking for people to come in and do like open mic night. I finally like went down to the club like on a Friday and uh, signed up to do the open mic night. And it just started as that. You know, I'd be out on the picket line Monday through Friday. And then on the weekend, I would be at the club, going up there, trying to do a two or three-minute, five-minute set. Eventually, what ended up happening was the guys that owned the club offered a a few of us opportunities to come in on their regular weekend shows and be the MC for whoever the big performer was. Once the uh, strike was over, I went back to my day job, but I was still working on the weekend. So now I'm actually working like seven days a week. You know, Monday through Friday, I'm at AT AT&T. And on the weekend, I'm at some club, but not just at Bonkers. Um, And it's funny, too, also, Bonkers was like a really interesting, cool, up-and-coming hotspot for comics that eventually become people who everybody household names. Like, um, when I got to Bonkers, Daryl Hammond was one of the regulars there um, from, you know, Saturday Night Live. Um, Billy Gardell from Mike and Molly, he was there doing his thing. Um, this other guy named Tom Rose who like opening act for everybody and had a show on NBC for a while there um, you know so it was like weird it was just a bunch of us dudes hanging out doing our thing at, his, at this brand new club that um, you know was just opening up the doors for you know fresh new talent to come in um, eventually I got a manager who said look I'm gonna book you at some comedy clubs but it's gonna be comedy clubs like across the country So there's no way that you can continue to do your AT&T job because you might be in Michigan or Detroit or Chicago or New York or, you know, whatever, Texas. And so that's when I had to make a decision. Like, do I want to try this new career change even though I'd gone through the whole doing the career thing? I mean, you know, I did did what every parent would be proud of. Went to college, got a job, met a girl, got married, the job was decent, it had benefits, you know, boom, you know, you live out the rest of your life. Now, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, ah, do I want to kind of start this all over again? <laughs> but ultimately, I did. You know, I picked up the phone, I called home, my mom answered the phone. My mom said, well, it's about time. It's about time you get paid for that thing that used to get you in trouble in school. And I was like, wow,
4: <laughs> that was one of the coolest, most supportive, gotta love mom. <laughs> things I've ever heard. You know? Where can people find you on social media? Where can they find you for, for the, the crowdfunding page for this? Where, the, where are the best places to go? Okay,
0: GoFundMe.com slash Battle Arcade. But if you don't remember all of that, just go to GoFundMe. Type in my name and boom, and they will take you to that page. Um, and you can find me on Twitter um, at philmore so for you That's P-H-I-L-M-O-O-R-E the number 4 and the letter U. And that's the same place you can hook me up on Instagram. And um, on Facebook page, um, it's just my name, Phil Moore. You'll know you're at the right spot because there's a picture of the Nick Arcade set
4: right there on the cover page. So those are the places you can find me. Hook me up and follow me. Thank you so much, uh, Phil, for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, man, Ian, my pleasure. Thank you for giving
0: me a moment to talk.
1: That's it for today's episode. Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help with our visibility. I want to thank Ben Schwartz, Caroline Weaver, and Phil Moore for being on the show. You were all wonderful. And a big thanks goes out to Sam Peach for our theme music, to Ian Goldstein for always submitting interesting interviews, and to Max Yoder for co-creating Camp Funergy. Thanks to Mike Sachs for creating such a great show. You should pick up his new book, Stinker Let's Loose. If you want to find out more about Mike... You can visit mikesax.com or doing it with mikesachs.com. If you want to contact me, hit me up on Twitter at Rob K. Schulte. That's R-O-B-the-letter K S C-H-U-L-T-E dot com. So until next time, keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it.
2: I do not believe that they are ghosts. That's just my personal bias. And by the way, you asked, what does the Bible teach about ghosts? Um, there is really nothing in the Bible that would that would encourage us to believe that we can have contact with those who are departed. Okay. on what her going toward the light means in terms of her own choices. See we can be deceived by spirits of darkness.
5: okay
2: But uh, it, it just kind of depends on what the origin of it is. I vote for the fact, That what's going on is something that needs to be understood very deeply within her. Okay. And I would vote for a professional counselor who's a Christian.